0: Hi everyone, I'm Mackenzie Feldman and I'm joined by my co-host John Eichard. If you're just tuning in, Agenda 23 is all about food and agriculture conversations between generations and we are interested in setting our own agenda for the 2023 Farm Bill. Before we start, I just want to give a quick shout out to King, our editor and producer for this podcast. Without him, this would not be possible. We're really excited to have with us today Vanessa Garcia Polanco with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Usually, I read people's bios to introduce uh, them, but Vanessa, I would love for you to just start uh, by introducing yourself and telling us about your background because I think you have such a wide range of experiences and, and your background is really amazing. And your and when we talked the last time, just hearing your story of how you came to this work, so you could just introduce yourself and. Um, how you got interested in in agriculture and farming. I think that would be really amazing.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Mackenzie. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. My name is Vanessa garcia Blanco, as you heard. Uh, First and foremost, I'm an immigrant, and I think that really shaped uh, the way I go about navigating food and agriculture policy work. I migrated to the U.S. actually uh, 10 years ago. It was my 10-year anniversary from the Dominican Republic, where I'm calling you today. Uh, and I landed in Rhode Island, the smallest state in the country that was also really similar to an island in the way that it was uh, coastal, really agricultural driven. Everyone knew each other. And I had to have really great opportunities in the food system there, like coordinating farmers markets, being involved in the Rhode and Food Policy Council, working for URI, Cuphead of Extension, while also getting my degree in environmental economics and sustainable agricultural food systems at the University of Rhode Island. And after that, I spent some time in D.C. uh, working at USDA, and the Department of Interior. And after that, I joined uh, Michigan State University to do my master's in community agriculture and food systems. And during that time, I learned a lot about different food systems, especially being in Michigan, where we have a really diversified agriculture system. But also a really high number of Latinx farmers and uh, immigrant and refugee growers. Uh, So that was also a great experience. And a year and a half ago, I joined the National Young Farmers Coalition and, and Federal Policy Team, which I used to be a member when I was in Rhode Island. Um, and that was a great space to connect with the agricultural community there and also talk about a lot of the land issues that we had in Rhode Island. I don't know if you know this, but Rhode Island has the most expensive farmland in the country. Uh, so it was a great hub and opportunity a space. And for the past uh, year and a half, I have been leading our federal policy work related to immigration labor a student debt and most recently our uh, climate work or what we call uh, fair opportunities in agriculture and access to USDA programs portfolios and in this role I get to advocate for young farmers and farmers of colors to have the resources they need to succeed in agriculture
0: amazing now you see why I wouldn't have <laughs> done it justice just to read your bio <laughs> it's really amazing
2: very impressive um,
0: John do you kind of want to just tell people, Uh, paint the picture for what we'll be talking about today and kind of the direction uh, you want to take it?
2: Yeah, you know, we'll go wherever you want to go in terms of the conversation. We just want to make it an open conversation. But I think the the question that invariably comes up when you talk about young farmers, beginning farmers, is how do you gain access to land? And I know this is one of the issues that the National Young Farmers Coalition has been involved in. So I, I was wondering if you had insights in that to begin with. And then, you know, there's a lot of other things to consider in starting and farming, but I think it's important, you know, that we address the issue of how young farmers can get access to land. What are your ideas on that?
1: I think for as a coalition and as a person who is interested in agriculture, but not sure if I will ever make the leap to becoming a farmer, uh, it's a, we try to talk about a lot of these issues from an intersectional way. Yes, we know that land access is the number one barrier uh, for young farmers and farmers of color to access and to enter in agriculture. But sometimes we forget to talk about the other barriers aside from land prices and what is driven, uh, driving those land prices and competit- competitivity uh, for buying those pieces of land. Uh, and other things that make it unaccessible for young people to enter and stay in agriculture, like student loans.
0: I love that piece you did in Civil Eats about uh, canceling student loan debt. I think that's so smart.
1: Yeah, and that's something that both, we would not always thought of cancellation as something that related to agriculture. For a long time, National Young Farmers Coalition advocated for adding farmers to public service loan forgiveness, that was uh, that is a program that if you work as a teacher or another public sector role for 10 years uh, like a nonprofit uh, you get your student there uh, forbidden up uh, but what we saw when the after the program turned 10 and many people in education teachers and nonprofits started applying is that they were denied and that the, the program was not working so, I think it took us like that shocking moment to realize like it doesn't make any sense to wanting to add farmers to a program that is not working uh, when there's having so many uh, barriers for them already. And that's what in after the pandemic I think we just saw this more driven opportunity to talk about economic justice uh, and that's the way we're thinking about it uh, when we talk about cancellation, uh, student debt cancellation. Student debt cancellation will, will be a matter of economic justice, but also racial justice as we know yeah. that borrowers of color, like brown, Latinas, and, um, and black are the ones who have most student loans because we lack the resources uh, from well to knowledge to apply to other opportunities to make higher education accessible. So I think right. when we think about intersectional issues affecting agriculture and beginning farmers, student loans is the second one. Uh, so many Thanks. people are always surprised when I tell them, yeah, like we support student debt cancellation or any time, 10,000 to 15,000, to even more or even less, because we believe that any, any reduction of that financial burden will help our farmers enter uh, agriculture, either as a farm owners, as other cooperative agreements or other opportunities for them to stay in agriculture too.
2: Right. I, I wrote a blog piece one time and, and said that the most important uh, policies for young farmers and beginning farmers was uh, universal access to health care. And free college tuition, because it seems to me that the young farmers that I've known that are starting off, they tend to do pretty good in the early years when it's, you know, I'm talking specifically about family farms where they have children, do pretty good in the early years. And then they begin to thinking about, well, how are we going to set aside enough money to send our kids to school? Or you end up that one of the two of the couple have to work off the farm in order to have health insurance so they can't both stay on the farm. So sometimes I think these uh, more general issues may be more important to, to farming than than the specific farm issues. What are you, what you thinking on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. We say issues beyond really the farm gate because there are issues that are happening in the farm. Well, it, it, agencies like the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, just something on the farm. We're like, no, we're not gonna think about this because they don't relate to agriculture. But we argue that they do. Uh, because they're affecting the future of agriculture, and the future young farmers and farmers of color. So we definitely see those issues all related as intersectional.
2: Well, you, you mentioned farmers of color. What what's your take on this uh, this controversy that's going on now, where they had, uh, you know, they, they had an executive order, I guess it was, that uh, would basically have had restitution for black farmers for discrimination against black farmers over the year, and that's been blocked and. You know, what What position has the Young Farmers Coalition taken on that?
1: Yes. So I just want to give some background uh, in case some people are not aware of what is going on. So back in February, March, uh, the American Rescue Plan authorized by Congress uh, $4 billion that will get paid to BIPOC producers, Black, Indigenous, uh, farmers of color, Latinx, and, and others, Um that basically they will uh, erase their FSA debt and the Farm Service Agency is a USDA agency that provides loans like any bank to farmers. So that program was being rolled out uh, in the past three, four months. And last month, uh, several lawsuits uh, to President and uh, judge on the word. They merit consideration. Right now, we have 10 lawsuits going on against the program. Uh, in in last month a judge said that the lawsuits had merit basically they were they were being considered to be taken to court so what happened last month is that judge filed what we call a preliminary injunction that stopped the payments like right now the program is still legal and ongoing we can just no issue payments both uh, farmers are still encouraged to apply and to seek uh, this opportunity so as a coalition um we are a majority-wide coalition that we advocate and try to be an ally uh, for BIPOC farmers, farmers of color, and BIPOC-led organizations, and serving organizations. So our position is that we're deeply frustrated uh, with this situation because we know uh, from everything that happened last year uh, that the payments that white farmers got were not, are not equitable at all compared to what uh, BIPOC farmers got. So, we, this, we see this program not as reparations or even balancing the scale. We see this program as just um, an opportunity to help farmers who are in need, who have not gotten help. So, as a coalition, we have joined Amicus Briefs and we are supporting the organizations and the litigants uh, uh, against the loss. So, because we think this loss, we uh, think this program is constitutional, that in the, the USA has all the authority authorized by Congress to implement the program so we hope to we hope it get dismissed soon from the courts
0: and who are the groups that are suing who are against these payments for black farmers
1: uh we know the people who are supporting the lawsuits are people who came from the former trump administration mm. uh, people who were his lawyers uh, as you know, at the end of the Trump administration, they were trying to block a lot of this racial equity, critical race theory programs, any program that will specifically focus on helping underserved, traditional, underserved communities, marginalized communities. So we see uh, this these steps that they had taken to file these lawsuits across several states with several conservative farmers who oppose this uh, this payments as just a continuation of the Trump administration, basically, like they don't wanna. Yeah. On they want to preserve the harm that they did on the on the way the funds were distributed. So yeah. I think that's that's the way we see this. Um, so for us, it's also, but we also know there's a lot of groups in favor of the payments, right? We we joined the Amazon Script, We joined twenty six groups, and also I. This is not public information that a lot of people might know, but like we have a list of everyone that's supportive the law when it passed. And there's 550 agricultural groups in Dallas. So I think that shows you how much support there is for this program, even when mm-hmm. uh, it's being, being called unconstitutional. Um, so, yeah, and this was approved by Congress, so it's constitutional.
0: <laughs> in, that, in that article that you wrote about canceling debt and civil eats, you wrote a sentence about how young BIPOC farmers are also less likely to benefit from debt provisions in the ARP because they do not trust the USDA. So I'm wondering, what do you say to BIPOC farmers? Because obviously you'd want farmers, you would encourage them to apply for these types of grants, but at the same time, you don't want to give people false hope and you know that there is a a likelihood that it's going to be way harder for them to receive, you know, access to land or money, Um, simply because they're people of color, you know, face other um, barriers. And so, yeah, how do you kind of talk about that and encourage people to use uh, the government and also have this reality check?
2: Let me add uh, kind of to that. And do you see a a fundamental difference in the Biden administration's of what we've had up to now in USDA? I'm kind of surprised at how bold they've been in some of their policy positions. What, what's your take on that? Is this, is this different or is this just window dressing?
1: Uh, I think it's different. Uh, window dressing remains to be seen, but it's definitely different. Yeah. Uh, I think just the amount of respect and the amount of listening and engagement that we got gotten from the Biden administration has been uh, terrific, has been on point compared to where we were coming from the previous administration. Uh, there were times in the previous administration that we were left at meetings, uh, that we were dismissed that we were not invited to meetings uh, because we were seeing us problematic or we're seeing us we were saying truths that they didn't want to hear. Where in this administration is like they're all it's an open door policy. They always want us to be telling us telling them things. They want to reach out to us often. Uh, There's more cooperation basically. Uh, and then in basically they have been really honest, like they're not afraid of feedback. Like you can tell us when we're doing something one and we will adapt. Uh, When the previous administration, it was more like, more dismissive, of that feedback. So we definitely appreciate this new administration and all the things they're doing uh, to remediate uh, the damage, uh, some of the damage that was done during the previous administration and historically at USDA. Um, So you asked me, how do we encourage farmers to engage uh, with this new USDA? And we we just have to be honest, like. Before I ask any farmer to like seek out a USDA opportunity to serve in a committee to apply for a loan, we always tell them, "This has happened. This is what has happened before. Are you willing to go through the process? Are you willing to be vulnerable?" Um, and well, basically, we need you also to apply this funding because you are eligible. You are entitled to this by the Constitution. By the way, these programs are authorized, uh, and we want to advocate for you, and we want to be telling the, the agency what is working, what is not. So a lot of the things that we are asking the agencies for cultural competency. And I don't mean only cultural competence. I mean, with language access or knowing how to work with native farmers and Latinx farmers. So like the kind of culture farmers are working with, like the farmers are working diversify operations. Uh, when a U.S.D. office may be like, you're growing 30 different vegetables, you're not growing a commodity. That's the kind of things that they may be that may be a cultural difference to for us in the way we are thinking about like agricultural production as a culture um, so overall we just want to encourage our farmers to still seek out these opportunities and use these resources because they are entitled to them they have the right to apply to them they are eligible uh, we just want to make sure they are accessible because that's our job to make sure these products are accessible uh, for them and if they are not telling the USDA how to improve them
0: yeah. Thank you. That's so important. John, did you want to get into the executive order um, around consolidation in the ag sector? I was wondering if you wanted to explain to people what Biden did a few days ago um, and kind of what you're feeling about it.
2: Yeah, that was the the executive order that just came out. And uh, I think it surprised a lot of people because as I understand it, the main focus was on addressing the issue of of corporate consolidation in the food industry. And that's been an issue that, that a lot of groups have been pushing for, for a long time saying we basically haven't enforced the antitrust laws in agricultures or anywhere since the 1980s. And we've gotten to a point now where there's a handful of large agribusiness corporations that control basically any sector of the economy you look at. They're focusing on the livestock and meat sector. It seems primarily but I think there is corporate consolidation all around the, all across the board. You know, my question is, are they really going to follow through with this? You know, when they, when the corporate pressure comes to kind of back off, I've seen this before when they say, well, we're going to enforce it. But when it gets around to basically enforcing the things that need to be done, uh, then corporate pressure comes in and, and they, they back down on it. So it seems to me that you know that's where a big part of the question is but it it does seem like that there were some positive things in here because i've i've t- said for a long time that one of the biggest obstacles to small and beginning farmers is access to markets and i, I don't think that necessarily means that you're going to have access to these large corporate operations because the small farm simply doesn't fit that large-scale mass production mass distribution system that we have here so I think we're going to have to create sort of an alternative food chain, if you will. And there was there was money in this uh, in this uh, executive order uh, to go out to small processing facilities and to give those small processing facilities money to expand and and money to create new processing opportunities within local communities to serve you know smaller markets and to to address the needs of smaller farmers. So I thought. You know, that and also uh, there were provisions to make it easier for small meat processing. And I assume others to It's more important than meat processing to get USDA federal inspection. That's been a really big problem for the small processors because they have to pay a USDA inspector to come out and and spend all day just to process a few animals. Uh, whereas they're processing thousands of them in the big operations. And so some of, those, some of those smaller provisions may turn out to be more important in the short run than the consolidation issue. But I was wondering what you, if you had impressions on that that you'd like to share with us.
1: Yeah, what I can say is uh, we have no reason to believe that they will now walk the talk and like, implement and take the steps to implement the second border. As we have seen with the ones about racial equity and climate action, they have really the department have really taken steps to implement the executive orders. So I think what we are I think we are looking forward to creating mechanisms uh, to hold them accountable how they move forward implementing the executive order. Example, in March and in April they did a lot of listening sessions, marketing regulatory programs about the markets and the supply chain resilience. And recently, they just closed a period on the supply chain resilience. And we know consolidation was a topic that came out a lot in entry to markets, access to markets, and fair markets. So I think they have really taken all the steps. I think the executive order is just like the golden rule to implement uh, the necessary steps that they want to take. So I'm confident, I feel really good that they will be making the necessary steps for us. You said, like, Will they back up to corporations and uh, business pressure remains to be seen. So I think now that we have this public record and executive order, I think we have that tool now, that mechanism that we can make. This is an executive order that you establish in the first six months of administration when, when in three years we can be, what have you done? So I think uh, it, it remains to be seen. Well, I think it's, good. I think it's fair to say we are optimistic. domestic.
0: Yeah, I wonder what I'm curious what inspired Biden to do that. I don't know if it's Bill it's all of a sudden inspired to do antitrust work or maybe it's just momentum from all the you know, grassroots organizing and, and pushing from groups like you. But yeah, I, I agree. I think that a lot of this wording was stuff that they tried and failed to do under Obama. So for now, it is sort of just talk until we actually see what what they do. John, I saw on, on Facebook recently, you've been sharing a lot about the water quality uh, issues in Iowa. And I feel like that relates so much to the big meat industry and these factory farms. Yeah, what, what's going on there?
2: Well, I, I don't know that there's much going on that's going to change the situation in Iowa right away. But I think there's a, a growing awareness that there's really a fundamental problem with the big, what I call industrial agricultural system the large monocropping and two crop systems like we have here in Iowa, corn, soybeans, hogs, all combined together. And the large confinement animal feeding operations. Uh, There was a study done by um, Bloomberg School of Public Health a year or so ago, maybe two years now, where they did a survey across the country, but they focused primarily, uh, the survey was focused on Iowa and North Carolina, where they have the big hog operations. And they found Even in the state of Iowa, there's a majority of the people in the state of Iowa now that say it's time for a moratorium on more CAFOs here so that we won't have expansion, at least that we can have a pause. And that would have been unheard of, Uh, I would say, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, that you would have had a majority of the people in the state of Iowa, which, you know, prides itself on support of agriculture, saying that we need to have a moratorium on something that's that closely identified with the industrial system of production so I think there is a an awakening going on across the country I'm working right now with the environmental law and Policy center here in the Midwest that uh, they're working with the state of Michigan to uphold some increase in the and manure management operations uh, requiring buffer strips and larger setbacks and things of that nature for the large confinement animal feeding operations the farm bureau and some others are fighting back and trying to prevent the uh, implementation of those regulations. But I, I think even there, you're seeing increasing public pressure all across the country for governments to step up and do something about this, because that kind of agriculture essentially is unregulated with respect to its negative impacts on, on the natural environment, on water quality, air quality, the whole range of issues. And I think if the public really understood what was going on, then there would be sort of a revolution against it and they would say you know quit spending government money supporting this kind of agriculture and you know we need to impose regulations on this kind of agriculture to protect the public health and to protect the natural environment but you know we may be a a ways away from that we want to get back maybe to the agenda for what you have on mind for the for the 2023 farm bill but but i'd like to get back to this thing of land access i don't know if you're. Familiar with this book or not? It's called, it's backwards on here, but it says Start Your Farm by Ellen Policek and, and Forrest Pritchard. And, and they say that access is, is more important, at least in the beginning. It kind of goes back to what you were saying before that a lot of times uh, young farmers will start out and say, Well, if I can't buy enough land, then why should I even try? You know, it just seems impossible. And what they're saying is, is that more important that you really learn how to farm and farm well and how to manage your farm business. Um, you know, not like the big corporate business, but you've got to, it's got to be profitable if you're going to stay in business over the long run. It doesn't mean you're maximizing profits, but it's got to be profitable. So, so they say it's more important that you have access to land. So whether it's working on some other farmer's farm, hopefully some experienced farmer that you can learn from that already has land while you're learning how to produce and, you know, be efficient and be productive and how to deal with problems and things of that nature and also learn something about the business side. And then uh, once you have that, that experience, then you're in a better position to acquire land by one means or another. Uh, and they also point out, you know, that there are low interest loans and then there's opportunities sometime for you to get uh, long-term leases on land where you essentially can farm it and pass on your lease to somebody else, but you don't actually own it. And they talk about conservation easements, the reducing the price of land, the various other things option. But, but as you were suggesting a while ago, sometimes the, the things that aren't obvious to beginning farmers up front. Like, well, how do I get access to land? They, they start by thinking, well, I've got to get access to enough land to farm like an like a industrial farmer. And my point is, if you've got a small farm and you're farming like a big farmer, that's probably the surest uh, recipe for failure that I can think of. Um, if you're a small farmer, then you need to be thinking about how do I make a better living on, on less land and less capital? by putting more of myself into it, by putting more of the management and to some extent more labor than you would in a large commercial farm. So you got to think about farming differently. And I think when you think about farming differently, the access to land and even acquisition of land in terms of buying land, you may not have to buy nearly as much land as you were thinking about if you came into it with a kind of conventional farming mindset. What do you think of that? Does that make sense to you? or? Not
1: really. I feel like that's a little... I don't know, I feel like that that analysis may not be may not work for some of our farmers. So many of our farmers they're first generation farmers. They don't they are still they're learning uh, how to yeah. farm. And also many of them they they don't want farm ownership in the way we think about traditional farm ownership or family farm. They want yeah. uh, a non profit farm that's gonna feed the community they want a cooperative farm where 10 farmers can uh grow the same 10 or 20 acres or something like that so yeah but but i i also understand why you're saying that it's really hard for a young farmer to move up to 600 acres or something like that um to make that transition uh, and that's also, and that also happens but those are not a lot of the farmers that we work with uh, a lot of farmers are struggling um to find the markets that work for them, but they're also really value-driven farmers. Like and I mean, values mm-hmm. like in the right. way that they want. Uh, they want to focus on building local and regional food systems. They're not doing this for profits. They're doing this for resilience. They're doing this for community, right. uh, and they're doing this um, to feed the community, to feed themselves, and just to reimagine alternative food systems.
2: Well, I, I you, you might have misunderstood me, but that's exactly what I was saying. That you had to do instead of trying to get the 600 acres or the 1,000 acres. Because even if you get 600 or 1,000, there's somebody else with 5,000. And you know, if you're into that kind of agriculture, there's a fundamental difference between the scale at which you have to operate if you're operating sort of with the industrial mindset, which is driving most conventional agriculture. And, and when you're farming with the mindset that you just described, which is what I think beginning farmers and young farmers really need to have is is the mindset that you describe better than I did. So I appreciate you doing that. But So I think uh, people out here that that may not know as much about uh, the young farmer movement, beginning farmer movement, as you do, some of those young farmers need to listen to people like you and say, well, don't try to be a big farmer, try to be something different. And this is what we're trying to do. So I applaud you on that.
1: Thank you, John. And also, I wanted to go back to what we're thinking about. What are we thinking for 2023? That seems yes. really far away. And I feel a lot of us are still no, I still we're still reacting to the pandemic, to the change of administration. And uh, every week we try to plan for the farm bill, and it seems like we keep getting a delay and delay because it seems so far away. But I feel like a lot of the lessons that we learned during the coronavirus are going to be the lessons that inform our next Bell. bill. Uh, and those lessons are uh, building a stronger, more resilient food system that would focus on local or regional markets and a focus on feeding people. Uh, and I definitely hope some of the lessons that we learned during the pandemic are really being uh, enacted upon in the Department of Agriculture and in other spaces in, in our communities at the state level. But I think we need to have really brave conversations and really brave imagination about the things that really need to happen. So when there's another shock to the system, like a pandemic, a natural disaster, or the climate chaos that's coming forward in the future, uh, we actually have better mechanisms and support structure for young farmers, farmers of color, and all farmers in general. Very
0: good. One thing I was thinking about recently with regional food systems was, you know, this potential with the infrastructure bill and, uh food procurement and getting more local sustainable farmers connected with schools and hospitals and prisons and being able to, you know, give that food. I was just wondering your thoughts on that and if it's if um it's a little bit scarier for farmers to have a contract with a government as opposed to a restaurant which maybe can be more flexible and you have more of a one-on-one relationship. Whereas with government sometimes you don't know if all of a sudden the rug might get you know, pulled under your feet or it's a lot of bureaucracy. And yeah, I just was wondering if you had a vision for how to connect more, you know, local, smaller scale food producers with these institutions because there is so much potential.
1: Yeah, definitely. We have uh, have done like case studies and evaluations working with farmers who sell uh, wholesale into large institutions, into corporations, into supermarkets, and things like that. And I think it also goes back to the word that I said earlier, cultural competency and cultural awareness. We need to uh, reshape those relationships and those systems so they can work. Uh, we young farmers and farmers of color who may have a different just working style. They are not uh, a, $3 billion, a $3 million business who can deliver away some time or that can, I don't know, have a uh, standing operating procedure and other things like that they have other mechanisms in place uh, that, work, that work for different uh, vendors and different venues, like institutions, schools, and government. I, but I think both for them to be meet in the middle and uh, negotiate what are some of those uh, cultural teams that we're willing to be flexible up, upon. Uh, and definitely we have seen um, many, many progress during the pandemic when like, like the food but programs was created when we definitely saw that relocation of farmers' goods that were going to institutions previously going to food banks, uh, in other places like that. So we need to create a long-standing infrastructure for programs like that to always succeed and to be accessible to young farmers and beginning um, farmers of color, which at the beginning it was not, and still at the end it was not. It was not perfect on participation, um, but they were feeding communities, and many of our farmers were. Um, I can think of, like, Tiana Kennedy in New York, who had, like, 600 people CSA at one moment during the pandemic, uh, delivering food to uh, New York City from two hours away. And they did, and many of them uh, didn't, they were not paying, like, full-price CSA models, so they were just literally giving away food to people that were in need. Why we cannot fund more people to do that, just to... Why we, don't, why we don't fund more farmers just to feed our communities yeah. in those models.
2: I've been trying to promote the idea of using public utilities specifically to deal with hunger issues. Um, I think you could use the public utilities to do a lot of things that we talked about. Basically, the idea is to set up the public utility locally where it's managed internally by the people that it, that it serves you'd have government representation to make sure that it served the public interest a lot like you do on other public utilities, but it'd be the people within the community, the people that are getting the food, the farmers, the processors within the local community, basically that would be running it. But that would allow you then to bring federal and state funds and bring those funds to the community level and allow the utility then to deal with the administrative and the bureaucracy of dealing with it, and then they allocate funds within people that want, you know, to assign their government funds to the utility, then they allocate the funds within the utility to meet the needs of the people overall, as opposed to, you know, allowing the funds, the decisions to be made through the federal program. So I, I, th- I, I know of, of some nonprofit organizations that have been able to do that, like with the government food assistance programs, they had, they get the the, the money that would go to the recipients and then in return for that, they take responsibility for making sure that the people that would have received the money receive, you know, a good diet of healthful food. So uh, what do you think of the idea maybe of using public utilities to kind of devolve the, the government funding to the local level where local people would be in charge of deciding how it's distributed and who benefits and who pays the cost? I think that's
1: a wonderful idea, but we have to be willing to make those investments. And I think as a coalition, we have been talking a lot about how could we continue pushing this idea that farming is public service, that farming right. should be a public good, it's in the public interest. And I know m- my colleague, Martin Lamos, has written a lot about it uh, for the counter when we're especially talking about reshaping and redefining our food system transformation under this new administration. Right. So I think uh, we will we we love to say that we love pilot programs at National Young Farmers Coalition. So we're always telling USDA, if you wanna do right. if you wanna pay farmers just to be farmers? We will we will give you ten farmers to try that out, uh, right. or any any kind of experiment or test that we wanna try out to see how we can further make farming in the public interest in right. and the public utility sphere. We will be happy to support most likely. Right. Because we think it's
2: the, the direction we should be going. Yeah, I, I think anytime the, the government has appropriated funds for something like for like for, uh, you know, government food assistance programs or even the farm programs, anytime the government has allocated public funds, it gets from the taxpayer to support a specific function that legitimizes that function as a legitimate public service. Otherwise, it wouldn't be appropriate to be spending public funds on it. And, and so what we're talking about here is simply devolving the decision making to the local level and using the funds that are there. I, th- I think you can make an argument that agriculture is a public service by the fact that we spend billions of dollars supporting it. It's just that we're supporting the kind of agriculture that doesn't accomplish the public service ends that the taxpayers are thinking that it does. And we need to redirect those public funds to serving the public interest by making sure that everybody has food.
1: And I, and I think we're moving towards the direction, even when I think at the local and at the state level, we have seen so many food policy councils pop up. We have seen so many uh, governors and cities taking approaches to thinking more strategically about how we're making decisions about food and agriculture in the state. So I think uh, more steps like that can help us get there when we involve more people in the governance of the food system. I think that's that creates a better food system.
2: Yeah, a public utility basically protects you from the market. It says you you don't have to allow the decisions to be determined by who can afford food or who can afford to produce food. You don't have to allow that to be determined by the market. We can determine that internally for those people that want to be affiliated with the public utility. I think of that because when I was growing up, we didn't have electricity, running water, that sort of thing, because I lived on a, a farm and it simply didn't make economic sense to run the light, we call them light lines, the poles and the wires, you know, two miles down the road for somebody that was going to spend 50 cents a month on their electric bill or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they come in and, and at that time they had the Royal Electric uh, uh, Association at the, at the government level. And they said, everybody has a right to electricity. And so they had a local cooperative that was organized as a public utility, the REA, real electric cooperatives. And uh, they came in and they hired local people to dig the holes and set the poles and set the lines. hired local people to come in and put wiring in those old houses that we lived in. And they, they did it. Didn't make economic sense, but the government says people have a right to electricity and what, I'm arguing now people have a right to food. They have a right to good food that doesn't make them sick. And so we ought to do the same sort of of thing there is to let the local people uh, do things in the way that they can get it done because the government bureaucracy today simply isn't working to accomplish some things that it should accomplish.
1: I know we have little time left, but I just want to, um, Mackenzie, you have any last questions for me?
0: Yeah, I, I, I wanted to just ask you before we wrap up, the last thing we like to ask everyone is just what can people do that are watching this? Um, but before you even a- answer that, I just wanted to ask you what what you're excited about and what gives you hope You know, out of all the agricultural issues that you're passionate about. What are you kind of thinking about either personally or as an organization right now that, that you'd like to see accomplished sometime in the, in the near future or for the 2023 Farm Bill?
1: Uh, something I'm excited about uh, is that we're all had a, like a slaps in the face about clima, climate emergency, uh, and we definitely are seeing movement and more than before towards taking a step towards climate action, what is the role in agriculture in that. Uh, so we really decided uh, with this administration, and with this generation of advocates, uh, to be seeing what happens in the future to make sure that uh, we're going to be acting on climate and that uh, farmers going to be part of that solution.
0: Thank you. Yeah, no, definitely agree.
1: And how people can get involved. So Yes. My favorite thing to say to people is that we all have power and privileges that we don't know in the food system as individuals, as agents, as residents. Uh, so use that just find ways to use that power, uh those privileges and the resources that you have available to you. Um I think for me I joined the Rhode Island Food Policy Council really young, and I think that allowed me to like see all the possibilities, but I also was part of like, the sustainability coalition at my university. So making that transition was like this move. And now I serve on like national and international committees advising on sustainable agriculture. So you all have power, privileges, and resources. Just uh, use them uh, to influence the change you want to see in the world So capacity.
0: That's great. And is there any... Uh, policy that we should be uh, looking out for or pressuring our Congress members to support It's coming up?
1: Uh, I think that just varies by person. I think you need to find what excites you and advocate for that and what, what is, uh, matches your values. Uh, but also, like, you are there's too many. There's always, like, 200 policies going on at any given moment. Like, I had to review three this afternoon. So it's like, there's always many. Uh, so just Uh, join organizations like National Young Farmers Solution that we tell you what is going on because we really agree that we have the same values and the same interests. So you can take the steps to get involved too.
2: Yeah, I think the important thing is everybody can do something. You know, everybody can do something in their little piece of the world. And so if we focused on that, then I think together we can do big things.
0: Well, thank you so much for, for coming on our show today. And we're really excited to put this out there and go everybody go to national young farmers coalition join sign up for the newsletter so you can see alerts and what's happening and thank you vanessa um i'm excited to see where you where you continue to go and hopefully <laughs> support you for secretary <laughs> of ag one day
1: <laughs> everyone keeps everyone keeps telling it out. thank you <laughs>